0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Changing Faith Podcast. This is episode 20, and it's the final episode of season one. Every year, I take some time off to regroup, to slow down, and I take some time to work on some different projects. Some of those I cannot wait to share with you. But for now, uh, I am heading off the grid, and season two of the podcast will be back in a couple of months. Uh, probably sometime in September, but we still have today, right now, this episode, episode 20, titled My Exit Interview. And it's a response to the many questions, conversations, and discussions I have had over the last couple of years. And my hope today is to reflect on those questions and conversations and discussions. And so to do that, I've taken many of the questions that I've received from you uh, over email, questions that I've uh, been asked over meals, questions that I've I've been asked during meetings, and I want to respond to those. Now, if you listened to the very first episode of the Changing Faith podcast, you may remember I spoke about this podcast being a way for us, for people of faith, to take our next step. And this episode, I hope, is helpful in your doing just that. And I say that because the questions and conversations that I'm going to reflect on today have come out of conversations I've had with people who are aware that they cannot remain within the religious tradition uh, that they grew up in. that They know that they not only can't remain, but they also realize that they can't go back. And I I resonate with that because I have left the the tradition that I grew up within. And uh, I know that I cannot go back. And, And so many people ask Uh, in that conversation, like, well, what was it like leaving? And I often say that it was was difficult and it felt a little scary. I actually compare it to uh, moving to Denver. In 2006, I was working at a church in West Michigan, and it was a group of people who took my wife and me in when we were in the midst of a really hard season. Uh, we had been wrecked by a church, and I was convinced that I was done with vocational vocational ministry in the local church. And the senior pastor of this church in West Michigan, a guy named Jim, someone for whom I have deep love and respect, said to me, uh, we want you to come here and heal. We, we want you to come here, not necessarily to work, but just to become whole again And uh, so we did. We we joined in with them, and I spent about two years there. And uh, about two years after that, I stood on the platform of that church. They had four weekend services, so I had to do this four times. stood on the platform of that church and announced that I had accepted a position at Denver Community Church. And uh, that church that we were at uh, gave so much to us and and they had a pretty sizable budget. They had a brand new expansive building. They paid me really generously. I lived in a great neighborhood. We were surrounded by friends and family. I mean everything everything seemed to be great. In Denver, well, Denver by comparison was a lot different. Uh, at that time, DCC, Denver Community Church had no money. They told me, we can pay you uh, for six months. In three of those six months, they could pay me because there was an individual who said, uh, I will cover his salary if things don't change. Like If you need me to to pay a salary, I'll do that. They told me that if the finances didn't change, um, that they'd have to close the doors of the church because they couldn't stay open. The building uh, at that time was in absolute shambles. There were very few people who were part of the church, And uh, different than our family and friends that we had known all over Grand Rapids when we were there in West Michigan, we knew two people in Denver. Uh, My old college roommate, a guy named Dugan and his wife, Jess, who, by the way, still thankfully some of our closest friends. Um, But my wife and I had this sense that we had to go to Denver. And we left everything that we knew and we headed out somewhere else, uh, with six months of guaranteed salary. And as much of a risk as that was as scary and difficult as that was, we knew deep in our bones that we had to do this sink or swim come hell or high water. We knew this was our next move. And so we went. And when I was in the process of leaving that wonderful church in West Michigan, uh, I had an exit interview where they asked me all sorts of questions about what was it like to be a part of this church and what would you hope for someone else who's going to work here in the future? And this is what I, how I want to frame our conversation today. This is my exit interview. And this sense of leaving, the sense of, of something being difficult, something being scary, but you know you have to go and in your going you recognize that you are leaving. This is the same sense I get from so many people who are leaving or jumping off evangelicalism. They know they have to go, but it feels so difficult. And it's difficult because there is the fear component. It's scary. And if you're anything like me, uh, you grew up in a world where hell was a constant motivator. I I just met with a couple uh, a few weeks ago who are crippled with a fear of being wrong. And I totally get it because it, it, we were taught, if you're wrong, you're going to hell. If you're wrong, you will experience eternal conscious torment. And so they're in my office crying, saying, what if we're wrong? What if we're wrong? And, and so it's scary. And and, and it's difficult Because if your experience is similar to mine, the evangelical world appears to be this massive, almighty, indestructible machine. Like, this is who the church is. This is who the church has always been. This is who the church will always be. But the truth is, it only feels that way when you're in it. You see, once you're outside you recognize that there is a massive, vibrant, exciting world to be experienced. And even more, that there is a large Christian tradition that is beautiful and stunning, and that the evangelical tradition is only a small part of that larger tradition, of that larger world. And I think for me, it was difficult leaving uh, because as much as it felt like I was walking away or jumping off the evangelical ship, it also felt like something died. Uh, recently, i i've I've really experienced like a death. like the the church of my memory seems like that church that's dead, or maybe it's that I finally walked far enough away to see the whole thing more clearly. and and for me, there's been a lot of heartbreak. There's been a lot of sorrow in the whole thing. My, my wife said to me recently as I was telling her, like, I don't, I don't understand what's happening with the evangelical church today. She said, you know, if you, if you stop and like just consider it for a moment, the attitude and the convictions and the communication and the, the, like, all this stuff that we see today, she said, I think it's always been there, like just under the surface. And I think she's right, which, by the way, nothing new there. She's always right. Uh, the number of times that people grew angry with me. Now, some of the times it was because I just was this arrogant, cocky, prideful, like 25-year-old kid. But, but there were other times where I would speak about immigration. I would speak about caring for the poor. Uh, I would talk about um, the environment and the ecological concerns, and our call to care for the environment. And I would see people get so angry with me. And I think that there's a sense in which a lot of a lot of what we see today has actually been right under the surface. And so maybe it's not so much a death as it is a, a realization, as being able to see with new eyes. And, and as difficult as this may be, as difficult as it is to go and in your going know that you can't stay, I still see people walking away day after day knowing they cannot go back. And quite frankly, once you've taken those initial steps, uh, it's not only that you don't want to go back, you can't go back. You can't unsee um, once you've seen. And so this This is my exit interview. These are the questions that I was asked as I left the evangelical tradition, and I want to share with you the questions to which I have responded, and the questions I am still asking, and the conversations I am still chewing on. The question that I have been asked the most is, so what are you calling yourself these days? Of course, I always quickly respond with, oh, I'm still going by Michael, (laughs) because, well, I'm a smart ass and I can't help it. Um, But the question comes from people who have long called themselves evangelical and they don't know what to call themselves anymore. And and the other question that's the follow-up of, so what are you calling yourself these days is, well, why won't you call yourself evangelical anymore? And and let me respond to that first. I've never liked labels of any kind. I actually wrote a blog years ago that said I'm not a can of soup. Uh, that, that soup has a label on it and because you can't see through the can, whatever the label says tells you the extent of the contents in the can. And, and I think there's this we, we had this idea that if we can label somebody, if we can pigeonhole somebody, if we can give someone this like this particular identity, then we know who they are and what they are all about. So I've never liked labels. Um, I recently heard an interview with a pastor who talked about the need to reclaim the term evangelical. Um, I have friends who they don't want to give up the term evangelical, and so they call themselves progressive evangelicals or post-evangelicals. And I, I think these people have their motivations, and, and I, I understand to a certain extent their motivations. And I think it's fine that they want that. Um, but I'm not interested in redeeming the label evangelical, quite honestly, um, because there are times when something is so broken. That you just, what you just don't fix it. Uh, in 2000, my wife and I went to Lowe's, like the, the big, big box hardware store, to buy a grill, and they had a floor model. It was a Charbroil grill, a floor model for eighty nine dollars. And it was this really, like, kind of pretty small grill. And the guy kept trying to sell me, like, this $500 grill. And I'm like, listen, man, I'm going to take this one, $89. Bucks. And he said to me, you know, it's only going to last you about two to three years. So he says, well, it's only going to last three years. I replaced every single part on this grill multiple times over the years. I probably spent, like, well, I probably spent about 500 bucks for, for this grill. Um, and a few years ago, it broke again. And my wife was like, honey, it's, it's time. It's time to get rid of the grill. Like we have to go, you you have to get rid of this thing. We can't do this anymore. Nothing that you replace will make this grill better. There are times when you say, yeah, you can't fix it. And then after a period of time of coming to grips with that, you just say, well, I guess, I guess it's time to get a new one. I guess it's time to toss it. And that's kind of how I feel about evangelicalism. That even over the last couple of years, I feel like this, this label's been so broken um, that it's time to toss it. And it's time just to say, okay, we're, I think maybe we're done with this. And, and when I respond that way, um, there are some people who get concerned when I speak with such a cavalier attitude about evangelicalism. And, and that concern often comes uh, from, well, where are you theologically? And, and many. Uh, in that, they, they wonder where I'm at theologically. They've accused me of going off the deep end or abandoning what they consider to be orthodox. And so let me address that. When I talk about um, walking away from evangelicalism or abandoning the label or saying it's too broken and we should scrap it, for me, uh, this has less to do uh, with theology than it does politics. Because the term evangelical in our broader culture today, not in the church, in our broader culture today, um, is a political label for many people. At this very moment, 78% of white evangelicals approve of the job our current president is doing. The term evangelical, uh, many have written about this, the term evangelical is more synonymous with the term Republican than it is with the person of Jesus. And I am not, nor have I ever been, I am not beholden to a political party. Um, I'm not patriotic, by the way. Uh, And I think Greg Boyd is spot on in his book, Myth of a Christian Nation, when he talks about that patriotism is one of the greatest threats to the church in America. Uh, And not only am I not beholden to a political party, not only am I not patriotic, but I'm also... Um, I'm not committed to the evangelical tradition. And when I spend time with friends outside of the Christian tradition, I listen to them talk about evangelicals and their confusion or anger or frustration with evangelicals. They talk about how hypocritical evangelicals are, that these people claim the name of Jesus and yet 81% of them voted uh 81% of white evangelicals voted for President Trump. Um they, they I just had a conversation recently with someone he's like, you know, evangelicals like ripped President Obama to shreds nonstop. And now if there's any criticism against our current president, they immediately say, "Oh no, you need to just pray for our president. This is God's man in the White House." And he said, "I never heard any evangelical say that President Obama was God's man in the White House. And when I hear this constant conversation happening with those outside of the Christian tradition, it seems clear to me that evangelicals have devolved more into a group bound together by partisan conviction than a group of people who are for the true and the good and the beautiful for all people. And in my experience, I have come to see that if I want to be serious about Jesus and who Jesus was and is, the term evangelical for me actually hinders that. And the term evangelical is actually an obstacle in relationships with a lot of people. It doesn't help at all. And so you may ask, wait, hang on a second. What do you mean more political than theological? Well, I grew up in churches that uh, we didn't just have the American flags on the platform. I don't know if you ever went to a church like that where there was the American flag on one side and the Christian flag on the other. And the American flag was always a little bit higher than the Christian flag. And it had the eagle on top of it that looked like the Roman eagle. Um, But this is the kind of church that I grew up in. And we didn't just have the American flag on the platform uh, on Sunday mornings all the time. We also were like waving American flags and wearing the red, white, and blue on every single nationalistic holiday. Uh, on Memorial Day, we had the color guard that would come down with guns on a Sunday morning, carrying the the flags and the guns and the whole deal. They'd march down the center aisle and they would do this whole military salute for all the men and women who had lost their lives. Uh, fighting for this country. Uh, On July 4, we always celebrated that with like songs and like patriotic songs. There was one Sunday I remember being at church on July 4 weekend and a huge American flag was lowered down from the ceiling all the way to the stage. Like everyone is cheering, clapping as the stars and stripes descend from the rafters. Uh, my, My dad, worked for a Christian organization who had an entire like musical production dedicated, uh, to the United States. And it like capped off with fireworks and they would actually do this, um, as an outreach. Like somehow this was like how they would reach out to the community. Um, it was like they were being like evangelists for the United States. And and so as I grew older, um, it occurred to me that it was hard to figure out who we were actually worshiping because we would celebrate having the strongest military in the world. And then we would talk about Jesus um, who was nonviolent. I grew up a stone's throw away from the moral majority and the religious right and they were like, they controlled the narrative for my tribe for so many years. They were the ones that were going to get the right people into the right places and the right offices and the right positions. In that way, our country would become the great hope for this world, which I often heard, by the way. Um, and I've said multiple times, the best way to describe the world that I grew up in is that the cross of Jesus Christ was a flagpole for the stars and stripes. That we would just like run the flag right up that the the cross. Now, as as far as countries go, the United States it's it's fine. Uh, And really, my problem is not with the United States, though I do have things to say about that. Um, It's with those who have woven the kingdom of heaven uh, into the fabric of the United States. Uh, It's almost like there's this assumption that you know, well, Jesus would stand for the national anthem, and Jesus would. Would wear an American flag on his t-shirt on Independence Day. Uh, And and these are some of the convictions that grew within me that I just began saying, no, no, I don't think he would. Uh, And when I began to publicly question the church's unwavering allegiance to the United States, man, you would have thought that I had just crucified Jesus a second time. I would get hate mail. I would get nasty emails by the dozens. I had someone who once uh, called for my resignation because I challenged some of the some of the ways that the church supports the United States and I noticed that this uh, this anger was especially pronounced whenever I would call out uh, a Republican leader if it was a Democrat not so much Republican it was I was getting way too close um, there were many recently who were surprised and outraged by Attorney General Jeff Sessions, when he quoted Romans 13, um, he, he re- referenced Romans 13 verse one, which is "Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established." And, and so, it's like this idea: like, don't rebel because you're rebelling against what God has instituted. And, and while people were shocked and outraged, I, I was, I wasn't. <laughs> because um, I heard those verses all the time growing up. And, and the trick is, I was never taught that those words were written to the church in Rome. And while this these words were written to the church in Rome, there wasn't many many suggest there wasn't intense persecution yet, but there was definitely some. A- and it was written to a church in Rome while they were under the the authority of Caesar who was considered a god, and who had the title Lord of Lords and King of Kings. See, it was that king and that government that the church was told to be subject to. And so I thought, well, if that was true then, and that's also still true now, it can't necessarily be an endorsement of the government uh, because right before Romans 13, 1, you have the end of Romans 12, which is talking about evil. And it's talking about those who do evil. And it talks about don't overcome evil with evil, overcome evil with good. And then it begins talking about the government. So there's something there's something to be said there for what the writer of Romans was really getting at. And if that's what he was saying then, then does it have to be true in all places? I mean, if he was saying this about the the Roman government, is it also true then of Stalin when he killed over 20 million people? Is it also true of Hitler in Germany? Which, by the way, it's interesting to note that there were Christian pastors in Germany in the 1930s who used these words to honor Hitler. Is it true right now for any Christians who are living in North Korea under the dictatorship of Kim Jong-un? Like, where is it? true. And when I would begin asking these questions, what I saw, what I witnessed, especially questions about the unwavering commitment to the Republican party and the unwavering commitment to the United States, I would see evangelicals get angry. I would see them do all kinds of mental and political gymnastics to ignore those questions. And I saw more and more how politics were often a major filter in their theology and the way that they read the Bible. And uh, what, what got me started on this journey is that just after 9-11, I began reading people like John Howard Yoder, Stanley Haueras, Walter Wink. Uh, later, it was Jim Wallace and Shane Claiborne and Greg Boyd, who I mentioned earlier. And it was like someone turned the lights on in a dark room. Finally, something like in someone or a group of people made sense of Jesus and the Bible and the murky world of evangelical politics. And, and you ask, but wait, there, there is some theology, right? I mean, it's not all politics. Well, of course, there's theology. And the world that I grew up within, that theology had surprisingly little to say about social issues. Most of what I learned growing up surrounded personal piety and the right beliefs. Uh, Personal piety, by the way, was like way at the top of the list. So like, don't smoke, don't chew, don't run with girls that do, which is that's just good advice, religious (laughs) or not. Um, You know, sex is bad, no drinking, no rock and roll. Um, I was really uh, raised in a conservative environment. We weren't allowed to go to the movie theaters. We weren't (laughs) allowed to use playing cards. This is why I'm so good at UNO. Um, Because all of those things, some of them are sin. The other side of it is some of those things are so close to sin that if you do any of those things, you will sin. And sin is central because sin is the thing that bars you from heaven and getting to heaven was the goal of the whole deal. So if heaven is the goal of the whole thing, if heaven is the, like, this is it, this is where we're going, And if it's about getting out of here, then we have to figure out what gets us out of here and to heaven. So we have to think about the right belief. We have to think about the right behavior. And when that is fundamental, it's really not that hard to see why social issues matter less and less. I mean, we were just told to get people ready for the next life, not this one, we were taught the question of, well, if you were going to die tonight, where would you spend eternity? And if people said they didn't know, or if they said, I'm pretty sure I'm going to hell, then we had like a fourfold bullet pointed thing, boom, 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 boom. And you could say, this is how you get to heaven. And so that was the whole idea. Get people ready for the next life, not this one. And I used to hear um, things like anytime social issues came up, they would, oh, that's the social gospel. Or like, if an environmental issue would come up, I would hear, well, wait do you see what God's going to do with the place. Because the assumption was, God was going to utterly destroy everything and anyone who was left behind. Yes, that is a reference to the book. <laughs> but as I grew, and as I read more, and as I learned more, I saw that the theology that I grew up learning was actually written by a very small group of people, and it wasn't very old at all. Um, it was rather new. It was very Western. It was incredibly American. Uh, it was all white and it was all male. And so, nearly all the theology I was taught from elementary school all the way through seminary um, was was written by and taught by white men. And then um, as I got into college and after college, I began um, learning from people of color. Um, I traveled more around the globe. I listened to and I read Catholic theologians, Orthodox theologians, liberation theologians. I learned about feminist theology. And I, I recognized immediately that they saw things differently than the people who had taught me growing up. And it piqued my interest because many of these people had a very viable viewpoint, a viewpoint that was rooted in every way, shape, and form uh, in scripture, just like the people that I grew up listening to. And so I began thinking, like, what if what I learned is not the only way of seeing things? What if what I learned wasn't actually correct? For example, Carl Rainer said that we must be willing to admit that should the doctrine of the Trinity have to be dropped as false, the major part of religious literature could well remain virtually unchanged. Yes, absolutely. I never heard anything about the Holy Spirit growing up. The Spirit was like always on the bench. Like Sure, the the Spirit was a part of the team, um, but definitely never really in the game. But, but then I would hear stories coming from around the world about what the Spirit is up to. I would spend time with people who would talk about the Spirit as though the Spirit was deep and real and still active. Um, I, I learned in seminary that the word, both in Hebrew and Greek, the original languages uh, of the Bible, that the word for Spirit in Hebrew and Greek is always feminine. So does does that mean God is a feminine side? And so I had on and on. These questions built up and built up. And I kept thinking, why aren't we talking about this? Like, how much are we missing? And then when I would ask questions, I was often quickly shut down. And so what happened to me when I began thinking about this theology within evangelicalism is I became theologically suspicious um, and I think there are some things that the evangelical world has to offer, but it's one voice among many. And the attitude that I encountered so often, what is that? It was the voice, the one correct, singular voice. And as I said, if the goal is getting into heaven and getting there is dependent on our behavior and theology, you have to think you are the one singular voice. But as I began to read and learn more and see more, I thought, man, if heaven's the goal and if right behavior and right belief is what gets you there, we're pretty much all screwed. (laughs) Because the more I read and listened and learned and experienced, the more I recognized the way that I was wrong and all there was I did not and could not and still do not know. And so I thought, man, we're either all going to hell or God is uh, way more gracious than we think. And and I chose to believe and still choose to believe that God is far more gracious than we think. And this was the start of my fears being relieved. And so you ask, so it's kind of been negative so far. Um, Is there anything you, you will take from your experience in the evangelical world? And to that, I would say, yes, Um, yes, there's a lot of things that I'm grateful for. I think the deconstruction is necessary, but if that's all that we do, uh, then we run into the danger of just living on top of ruins. And and so for me, I can say the first thing I'm grateful for and that I I have taken with me um, in, in leaving the evangelical world is a moral compass. I learned a great deal about the importance of morality and that's actually expanded for me. Um, I made a lot of mistakes growing up, but I I'm grateful that I made far fewer mistakes than I would have without the the morality that was taught to me. Um, and I think today there's a little bit of an anything goes attitude among a lot of people. And I realize that I sound prudish or like you know whatever. That's fine. Uh, you can accuse me of that. But the moral foundation for me has proven and remained so important, um, and, and I think for me it's moved from my own personal uh, morality—a um, a morality that I'm able to hold without judging those who choose differently, without condemning those who choose differently, but also realizing that I think there are some uh, th- there are some parts of morality that are just good for. for all of us. They're they're good for our world. Um, so I'm grateful for that. I I think second, um, I'm grateful for Jesus. And I know that sounds corny. Like that's the, that's the answer to what, to every Sunday school question. Um, but the first thing I learned and that I'm still learning uh, about Jesus was Jesus loves me. This I know. And the more I have studied the life of the historical Jesus the more I am enthralled with who Jesus is, the word from the beginning. Uh, I, I've seen the absolute scandal that surrounded Jesus everywhere he went. Uh, I often say that there was a reason that the rumors of him being a glutton and a drunkard were believable, um, that he wasn't hanging out with the right people, he wasn't going to the right parties. He, like, Did anyone ever say like, man, I saw Jesus hanging out with a prostitute last night. Um, like there was scandal around him all the time. Jesus welcomed everybody, everyone, anyone who wanted to spend time with him. Jesus would say, okay, he did not have, uh, people that he would say no to when it came to spending time. And, um, for all the moments that I've been somewhere between a devout Christian and an agnostic, uh, and I seem to always be between those two places, just at different places on the on the continuum, um, I've never been able to escape the loving gaze of Jesus, the the power of his humility, um, his wild and inclusive embrace of all people, uh, his willingness to challenge the status quo his struggle of uh, what it meant to be him. Like, God, I don't want to go through this. I don't want to have to do this. Uh, so profoundly and deeply human and loving. I, I just, uh, yeah, I'm so grateful that I was introduced with that that little song, Jesus loves me, this I know. And I think the other thing uh, that I'm grateful for is that the evangelicals taught me about the Bible, Um, taught me to love the Bible, taught me to trust the Bible. And ironically, this is, um, what opened my eyes and broke me open and led me to expand and led me to where I am today. Um, I think the Bible is incredibly subversive. The Bible is incredibly, um, explosive and it's really upsetting. If you can read the Bible and it doesn't piss you off, I'm not sure you're, uh, giving it a fair shake. Uh, the Bible, it, it, it should like rile us up inside. Uh, I believe the Bible is inspired, meaning that it, I think it breathes a new life. I think it breathes a new word. Uh, I think it's dynamic. I think it's impossible. Uh, I think it's always inviting us into deeper conversation with it and with one another. And um, and again, it was the Bible that led me to walk away from my tribe of origin. Um, In reading the Prophets, for example, I I was blown away by how much God, through the Prophets, is talking about justice, 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 justice and righteousness. Which, by the way, righteousness doesn't have to do with personal piety. Righteousness is much more connected to justice. It's making things right. It's in the beginning of the word. This idea of righteousness and justice, the foundations of of God's throne, as the psalmist says, and um, John Dominic Crossan talks about how God never says to people, I reject your justice because of your lack of worship, but I do reject your worship because of your lack of justice. The, again, th- this this opening up of the Hebrew prophets, and I my mind was blown because I had never seen or read them before. Uh, I was taught... Uh, to study the Bible in context, to always dig deeper, to figure out what was going on kind of behind the scenes. And it was this uh, learning from the evangelical world that changed my mind with regard to LGBTQ inclusion. Um, There were many who told me I was throwing the Bible away and I would often be like, wait a second, what you taught me to do is what I did. And it's what opened my eyes to what's been there the whole time. Um, and like, why do we give context and contextual thought to so many parts of the New Testament, except for those particular sets, uh, of commands? Um, but it was actually the way I was taught to read the Bible is what changed my mind about so many things like hell, for example. Um, I grew up hearing about hell all the time. And then as I, uh, Years ago, my mentor told, talked to me about reading the Gospels once a month, and so I did, and I realized that every time Jesus talks about hell, every single time Jesus talks about hell, he's addressing people who are religious. Jesus never says to people who are not in his like orbit or people who were rejected by the religious that they were going to hell— Jesus always looks at the religious and warns them about them going to hell. And so recently I had someone who said to me, you know, I think it would be good if you would talk about hell more in your sermons. And I thought to myself, well, wait, wait, wait a second. The people who seem to be the most obsessed about hell in the gospels are the religious and the people In our world today, who seem to be the most obsessed about hell are the religious. And it's those people that Jesus is always saying to, like, you are obsessed with hell. You're obsessed with who's in and who's out. And just know this be warned. The more obsessed you are with who's in and who's out, the more likely it is you will find yourself on the outside. So, so again, this, even my thinking about hell in heaven changed because I read the Bible. Um, I, I had a friend who was really riled up about immigration and the fact that we would even talk about it in the church. And one of our pastors here on staff said, uh, hey, take two weeks and just find every place in the Bible that speaks about immigration and immigrants and then come back and talk to me. And this guy came back two weeks later and was like, dude, I had no idea. Uh, And he said, if we begin the conversation about immigration with politics, we start in the wrong place. And I was like, right? Yes, absolutely. That our our conviction regarding immigration and immigrants and how we love them ought to be rooted in the Bible. This is what I was taught and yet 1 in 10 evangelicals a lifeway research survey in 2015 says actually know what the bible teaches about immigration. And so for me because I was introduced to the bible, I feel like I'm more serious about the bible than ever and the very thing I was taught to love and embrace was the the vehicle that led in large part to my leaving the evangelical fold. And so you may ask well Okay, so you've left. Where are you heading to now? And I can say with full confidence, I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, I'm more compelled by Jesus than ever. Uh, I'm more curious about the Bible than ever. I think the church in its current form is undergoing a renewal. And this is nothing new, by the way. It's happened many, many times. Uh, I think as a pastor, I want to help people develop and grow and mature and deepen and be more expansive in the way they see and know and experience God. And in all of this, the one thing I do know is is that I'm I'm not scared anymore. Uh, I don't live with this impending fear of doom of God is going to come out and get me. Um, And I say that, by the way, not because I finally know I'm right. It's because I finally become comfortable with being wrong. Uh, I'm wrong. I'm wrong about all sorts of things, by the way, and, and there are some things I, I know that I'm wrong about, um, and then there's some things that I'm not even aware of that I'm wrong about. But I don't think that God's going to give us an entrance exam in the life to come. I, I don't think that there's some sort of checklist of like, yeah, you were like eight out of ten, and you know, with with the extra credit, you're you know up to a ninety percent, so you're in. Like, come on. And, and so for me. This gives me tremendous freedom to take risks and leaps of faith, and I'm blessed beyond words that I don't have to do this alone. I have so many people who, uh, they've blazed the trail that I walk on, Uh, I stand on their shoulders, and then I also have so many people who are alongside of me uh, who are in the same exact place. And my hope is that um, when it comes to where I'm heading to, that I will get to know God more. Uh, which is just basically the same way of saying that I will only learn how much I don't know. And I'm okay with that. Uh, God is bigger than our ideas. God is bigger than our theology, our churches, our politics, our countries, and uh, we will be fine. Uh, and in all of this, my heart uh, longs to and I purpose to follow Jesus and by the way, that, that attitude has gotten a lot of people killed over year, over the years. Um, but I, I still want to live like him. I, I want to have his humility. I want to learn like him to give up my privilege and walk the path of descent that he walked. Uh, I, I don't want to try to accomplish all the things our culture tells us that we have to do, but to pursue a daily renewal of death and burial In resurrection, in all the places and in all the spaces in my life, so that I will learn to love uh, with the love of God, to love deeply, uh, to love honestly, to to love with strength, to love with courage, and, and to love dangerously like Jesus did. And now you may wonder well, what would you say to people who are ready to jump off the evangelical ship or people who already have? And so I would say first, you don't have to toss everything out. You see, there is a belief that when we grow, uh, we we fully abandon one stage and move into another. But this is actually not true. Uh, We carry our experiences with us. We carry stuff with us. This is why some of the most angry people I know um, are people who grew up in the evangelical tradition and believe that they don't have any of that in them anymore. But I would say, no, you actually do. And I think that we often hate in others the very thing we hate most about ourselves. I've said that before. And this explains why when they look back, they there's something that they hate that's within them. This is why those who argue with vitriol about beliefs and politics and religion from a progressive side um, are often those who grew up within the evangelical fold. And they look back with hate, and they look back with disdain, and and I would say, hang on a second, you don't have to throw it all away. You can transcend that limited viewpoint, and you can include the best parts of that viewpoint. And this is why I talk about the moral compass. This is why I talk about um, being introduced to Jesus at a young age. This is why I talk about the Bible. Um that if I didn't have those things, and if I didn't have all the experiences I had up until today, I wouldn't be where I am today. And so I haven't thrown it all away, and uh, I'm actually thankful for the experiences I had, and I'm thankful for my tribe. Uh, the second thing I would say is take time to lament. We we're not good at lamenting, uh, largely speaking, in the American culture. But if you've been wounded. Uh, maybe you're disillusioned, maybe you got kicked out, maybe this wasn't your choice, Um, maybe you've been on the receiving end of uh, nasty communication or you've experienced broken relationships, Um, weep about that. Write a goodbye letter. Um, Have a funeral. I mean, bury it and and weep over it. Name the way that you've been wounded. Uh, Spiritual abuse is alive and well. And I think if we're able to lament, if we're able to weep, if we're able to bury it, have a funeral, however you want to say it, it's uh, it will remind you of what you've been given. It will remind you of what needs to be buried. There will be closure. There can be healing uh, because it's cathartic. Uh, the third thing I would say is there is nothing to fear. Uh, throughout the Bible, when people have an encounter with the divine, it always begins with the divine being say, do not be afraid or uh, fear not for God is with you. God is love and perfect love drives out fear. And those two things, by the way, they can't coexist. And so I would say pursue God's heart with all of you, read and study and learn and ask questions and learn better questions to ask and go deeper and don't stop and realize God is not angry with you for doing that. Uh, My kids, as I've watched them grow up, their questions, their skepticism, and sometimes even their frustration, it, it just... I've seen it all grow and it's more complex. That the more they learn about themselves and the more they learn about the world and the more that they hear and read and discover, the more robust questions they have, the more skepticism they have, the more curiosity they have. And when I see my kids who are curious, who begin asking questions, I love it. I love it. It's the, it so much fun. And so as Jesus once said, if you who are evil can give good gifts to your children, how much more God in heaven? And that's kind of my heart. It's like, wait, wait, wait. If I can appreciate my kids asking these questions, how much more God? There is nothing to fear. There is no question you will ask that will catch God off guard in questions and curiosity and pushing and exploring and risking. Those things are good and those things are healthy. It helps to remember that evangelicalism, evangelicalism started because of people who were willing to ask questions and be curious and push and explore and risk. People who lived in a world where the Bible was used to defend slavery, who began saying, I think this is wrong. I think that we need to rethink our theology. People who pushed against it, like Charles Finney and Jonathan Blanchard and Lucy Stone, they pushed forward and they saw social engagement as central to the heart of evangelicalism. These are our roots to move beyond, to push forward, to blaze new trails. And this is not only the roots of evangelicalism, it's the heart of the Christian tradition. I mean, this whole thing started because of people who are willing to take risks. This is the Christian tradition that one who is centered on the person of Jesus, who also in his day pushed forward and transcended the religious and political boundaries of his day. And he did it without fear because he knew God. But like many things, when people fail to mature with health, rather than blazing new trails, we begin to settle down, we begin to build walls, we begin to defend our territory. And I think people fail to remember who they originally were. And I think this is what I've seen happen. And this is why, for me, it was time to say goodbye a long time ago. And uh, for me, the, the, I, I keep holding that the Christian tradition has long been a tradition that pushes forward from an obscure, marginal Jewish movement in the northern part of a small province, province called Judea in the Roman Empire into the expansive embrace of a loving God. God is always on the move. And I would say to you, never forget, we don't surprise God, but God has long been in the business of surprising us you might be thinking, okay, okay, that's helpful. But you never answered how you identify yourself. (laughs) Yes, well, I was hoping I'd actually slip that by you. Um, And quite honestly, you can call me whatever you want. Uh, son of God, younger sibling of Jesus, a Christian, a Jesus follower, son of the universe, a pilgrim, uh, a, a sojourner, a seeker of truth, one who celebrates the true and the good and the beautiful wherever and whenever I see it, whatever you want to call me, uh, it's fine. I'm not into labels. Uh, and for the most part, I still just go by Michael. <laughs> uh, yes. So with that, my encouragement is this, keep taking steps. Keep taking risks. Keep leaping and jumping and falling and getting up and wandering and returning, knowing all the while there is a God who runs down the road to greet us with arms wide open. Trust that. Trust that kind of God. Trust that kind of love. And that, my friends, is the end of season one. I will miss you. And I cannot wait to reconnect with you in just a little bit. And until then, as always, much love and peace be with you.